Good evening and welcome to Humanities 101. I'm Kendra Cowley. And I'm Lisa Prinz, and we are the coordinators of Humanities 101 or HUM. Along with our amazing volunteers and intern Morningstar Willier, we have been putting together weekly classes here on CJSR. HUM is a free university course that usually meets in person at the U of A and off campus. But due to COVID-19, we are now meeting on air. You can always reach out for more information at 587-709-5472 or hum101 at ualberta.ca. You can also check out our website at hum101onair.ca where you will find past episodes and materials that are mentioned in interviews and readings to help keep us thinking. Last week, we learned about how artists, activists, and university instructors are using image, art, and movement to share stories, delve deeper into stories, and to help us better understand how our own stories impact, reflect, and change the world and communities around us. There are some amazing people doing really cool work around storytelling. We feel very lucky to have had the opportunity to meet so many of them, and we're only halfway through the course. If you missed last week or any of the other weeks, you can listen online through our website, hum101onair.ca. This week is the first of two classes on music and storytelling. We'll be learning from not just musicians, but also others who make music possible. We thought a good place to start was with a musician who has been part of this class the whole term. Chris Harper is a member of Nahuac and AG47. You have all heard some of AG47 as they wrote the theme music for the show. As you're about to hear, Chris has been thinking about music and the stories he wants to tell through music for a long time. Just a heads up, Chris uses the term melanated throughout the interview. It was new to me to hear this term used frequently in conversation. I assumed it referenced people's melanin or dark skin pigment, and more specifically, those who have darker skin color or melanin. I did some quick searches and asked some people how this term is being used and heard that it is being used positively by POC folks as a way of acknowledging people whose skin has more melanin. Interviewing Chris was so fun, and I really hope that that joy comes through to you. My name is Chris Harper. Um, I currently am playing in the bands uh, AG47 and Nehiwak. Um, yeah, so like, I guess talking about the how I kind of got into the storytelling part and, and music and stuff. Um, obviously like, you know, music, something I grew up around. My brother was also a bit of a musician um, when I was younger. So I had the opportunity to go into like jam spaces as a real small kid and stuff in Saskatoon. That kind of like pushed me into wanting to play some guitar, be loud like that. But then, um, but there were some kind of, I'd say storytellers that really kind of twigged me onto the power of what a story within, let's say three minutes or something could actually do. And some of those people were, you know, like uh, Leonard Cohen or Buffy St. Marie or uh, Bob Dylan. Growing up listening to a lot of that kind of stuff, I really felt there was a, absolutely was a real power in not just the music and not just a really nice catchy melody, but also a really poignant story. Uh, my mother is Nehiao and my father's Irish, but I grew up really being a, around different uh, indigenous people, some traditional and, you know, some just cool folks. And I really felt connected to these people, like to, to my family, to these kind of stories that were a little bit unusual uh, versus, let's say, being at my dad's family or there were things I wasn't hearing in many other places, um, little parts of the story or little inflections, a way to say things. Being a part of the music scene at Edmonton, to be honest, um, I was very always quite aware that, you know, myself and a few other people in the room were indigenous, but that was it. Sometimes I'd be, I'd find out someone was indigenous. Oh, no way. Really? That's so cool. <laughs> but it did feel a little bit more like, mysterious in this way like I it just wasn't out in the open and then I kind of I think as I got older I started to look at music a little bit differently the history of let's say recorded music in that I kind of started to see that there's something else about um I guess colonial history 
But again, if you look at the music, you're starting to get into indigenous or melanated voices. It's not to say that there are not huge amounts of work by people who would fall into these categories. But at the same time, it's just different. It's almost subcategory stuff. You can tell like, okay, there's 10 European male recordings and there's uh, two melanated women and one indigenous woman. So for me, historically, I wasn't satisfied. I, I kind of felt like indigeneity, that's still under all these colonial jurisdictions and, and assertions. Like the, there has been a description made of indigenous people and, and it's kind of been put out there almost like propaganda. This, this whole thing kind of was the basis upon which I, I wanted to start Nehuac. And, and that was an idea that actually I talked about with Matthew in 2012. And when Merrick moved to town, it was just kind of like, all right, like he, he brought it up. He's like, we should jam. And, and I had already been writing songs, but when I kind of uh, was writing these tracks, I knew that, you know, there could be a real power if the whole band were uh, made up of indigenous people. But, but what my work and, and working with Jason now is really become is, is actually trying to align ourselves um, with many other people who might fit the category of indigenous or black or colored, but in reality, their own family stories may be a bit deeper and have a bit more um, power too than we tend to realize. Being that historically, colonially, a lot of the land acquisitions and things that have gone on for the last couple of hundred years have been relatively illegal. This has always been this kind of ongoing part of my story that I feel like is really important because for me, my own family uh, lost land, lost title, had to ascribe to a thing called status, uses English names to describe themselves when there were Nehiao Weiwin names that pre-existed pre-existed, but a lot of, a lot of our families have forgotten these names and it's trying to redraw it. You know, um, for me, the work becomes that like it's, it is on one hand, it's making some catchy song or something, something nice that you can sing along to. On another hand, it is always trying to push the listener into thinking and to, to not being satisfied. Like I always am trying to put in little nuggets. So to keep you thinking, because that was, you know, Something when I was listening to Johnny Cash or Archie Roach or, you know, it would be something about hearing it for the first time, but then being like, oh my God, did they just say that? You know, like you got to go back. And that, that kind of thing in the story is, that's really important for me. And uh, yeah, so, so anyway, <laughs> sorry to go on so long, but yeah, that really kind of spells some of the bit out, you know? I'm just wondering what it's like as a musician to work in different ways of telling stories. So it even seems that within your own storytelling, you're working with words, lyrics, as well as sound. I know that AG47 and yours and Jason's work is really around sound. So you, there's those layers of stories. And now you've also invited poets and you've invited elders and you've invited other people's stories. What, how does yes. that collaboration work? How does it, how is, how did that come to be? Firstly, this idea of this band, it was either that or I applied to go to art school and I got accepted. And I was like, okay, is the art school or Merrick just moved here and we can like start this band like silly me. And I just thought, you know, mess that. Let's, let's just like do this band. If it doesn't work in a year or two, I'll just, I'll go back to school. It's all good. And uh, so I haven't gone back to school. When it came to that, being involved in these stories and then having others involved, like Marilyn, I met Marilyn at, at the university. And actually, I met her before I attended at, um, it was an I Don't Know More talk. And she read one of her poems. There was a, like a lightning bolt hit, you know? And I was, so right away, I was like, holy Dinah. This is some powerful, powerful work. Then I contacted Marilyn. Little do we know, we find out we're actually related. She's my mom's cousin. And then I was just like, oh, what? And so, you know, and I'm being influenced by all this stuff. And so that track, that page that she's on, was actually really influenced by that Magna Carta. Because the Magna Carta came through Edmonton as well. And I was like, damn, like reading about it, like this piece of pigskin where this king wrote on it and it changed the world, you know? And I'm like, wow, that's something else. Like one page, 
to change the world, you know? From there, there was then the allowance to attack the natural, natural world. That kind of paper and a single page and then many pages have been used as this kind of like way to, to be okay with attacking the natural world and felt to me like important to speak against that, to rebuttal. And so aligning our own work with other powerful people in like this, like Marilyn and Reuben Quinn and, and Courtney Morin, who did all the artwork. She was uh, not only our VJ when it came, so that's like video jockey. I think it's someone who, who put like images behind a band. And a lot of times we got her to put the images right in front of us. So you, you could kind of see us, but you weren't really meant, it wasn't meant to be a show about the three of us. It was always meant to be these pictures and the sound coming at you. And then Jason Boris actually behind the board. So it was like aligning with people that could, we could all speak strongly together. Got Connor McNally, another indigenous filmmaker from Edmonton or Miskwichi to take photos of us and because I was also like, okay, is the indigenous gaze like it's actually an indigenous guy who pressed click, you know, <laughs> all this kind of stuff. Like, just trying to make a deep story, and again, some of it was uh, personal experiences, and then some of it was literally where we're from. Like, that was something else. I know that no other river is going to necessarily flow at ninety beats per minute, but most cities and most places that people live have a river, so it's kind of this way to like locate you. So that was always, that was something else. And I mean, not, not just that, but even the term Nehiawak, uh, um, that was all kind of, I was influenced by the uh, Ethiopians, a band from Jamaica, and hearing about how they started. And they went to their, uh, the Rastafarian uh, community, the elders, and were like, listen, we're starting this band. We're infusing a lot of the ideas of the Rastafarian culture. We want to have the right name so then these elders were like well you should call yourself the ethiopians so then i was like talking with matthew merrick i'm like yo we should really talk to the elders in our community and see what we should call this band because we didn't have a band name when we when we recorded so matthew's genius dad tarzan he was like hey you should say nehiwak because by saying kree a lot of times that was just this interpretation of a word or or of a people and for 1650 or something before that that word Cree had no meaning and the term before that was Nehia or Nehiawak and he's like that thing echoed in this in these valleys and throughout this land really you should put the word back into people's mouth and force them to try to say it you know (laughs) anyway all that kind of stuff it became a part of this story and trying to align with those people I just felt like we got one crack at this (laughs) and then let's just make this is the most heaviest, powerful language we can, because that's what's going to ring out for people later. They can read deeper. You know, everyone gets the opportunity to maybe see some of these names like Rubens or Marilyn or Courtney, and then look into what they're doing. And that's kind of, that's Nehia. Like that's, that's, that's this real concept of indigeneity that it really doesn't boil down to one person. Everyone's involved and everyone is like, the individual is kind of pulled out, I think. Um, so yeah, yeah. (laughs) So you've been nominated for a ton of awards. Um, you've got a lot of, uh, attention, especially in Canada and international attention around your work. What does that mean for you? This is is really out of uh, our control in a lot of ways too. It was timing, all kinds of things assisted with, with our project. And then also like, I do feel like honesty. There was a large level of honesty implied by all of us from the beginning that, okay, okay, let's make this really powerful music, as powerful as we can. Let's really talk about it. Let's like get these ideas sorted so that we've really, you know, put as much as we can into this presentation. But then also (laughs) that was the, the really cool luck of it all was just signing with arts and crafts because actually that, um, in the music industry, it's not just Arts of Christ, all these different labels, they do dictate what's kind of going on. And if you're not aligned with them or you're speaking outside of these kind of different companies, it just doesn't get the listenership. It's not to say it can't. It, it doesn't necessarily get the listenership. We had some beautiful experiences playing music, but I do think too, like I... 
the best part was making the album. You know, like that was the payoff. And then we made that album and then I listened to it a bunch of times and I was like, damn, that's cool. That is so cool. I'm so happy we did that. And it didn't matter if there was um, actual money coming in from it. And that's how it's kind of always been. And then now the music that I'm making with Jason, I feel like we're for the first time to Jason's ability, his experience, it feels kind of like we finally shook off all the gatekeepers, you know, because in now it's like we can not only produce and complete all our own music before we send it out, but we're not held accountable to any uh, label. It's like, hey guys, like really need another dance floor hit, you know, like whatever. Yeah, we can just have a good time and, and truly try to try to share that fun. There's just more room in this. And I, and I do feel like there's more ability to support grassroots initiatives. And I don't know, I think there's potentially more freedom for us each to work as individuals and to work with other artists and keep bringing more voices up as opposed to, you know, trying to hold on to the mic and won't let go. You know, um, Something I wanted to bring up that now <laughs> I can read my notes uh, in regards to the name Nawak, when you say to yeah. put it in people's mouths again and to have them say it. Mm -hmm. um, and I think about when you started this conversation, when you would look around the room um, on the floor and there were not many indigenous peoples right. there. Right. Um, and how exciting it must be to, to see parts of yourself and your community um, in there. <clears throat> the more we speak those words, what does that do for the indigenous like languages in the space and peoples in the space. What do you what do you think that does? Having those stories told, what does that feel like? What does that mean to you as the storyteller? Do you see a difference in the space? Do you feel a difference in the space now? What does that mean for you? We haven't played any live shows now for a while, just because of everything. But I do think it's it is about truth. It's like it's like if your mom's name was like anglicized let's say how and wherever your mom is from but then everyone including yourself refer your mom by that name meanwhile she was given another name up until the age of let's say 12 or 16 or something she was being called that name every day and this is what rung to them by calling your mom by her actual name is it empowering i think in every case it is because just just for the simple fact that you're even trying, like it's no one's thought I'd nail this. Like I, I actually feel like the part of this, uh, the linguist side that has gone on, which has to do with the destruction of language that's impacted us. Like it, specifically myself and, and Matthew and Merrick, we were all raised in homes with one parent that's, that was able to speak fluently and we're, we're not spoken to in this way there was like a hidden language you know and my, i would always hear my mom on the phone with relatives aunties or uncles or uh, family friends she'd be speaking that here way when and then she'd go uh chris can you you know blah 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 in english and so i was always kind of like you know what what were you saying there like how did you say that and then learning a few little words but the linguist side was so effective that um that even let's say an indigenous woman, my mother, her children, there'll be words, there'll be things that you'll ask us to say. And, you know, like I can speak even for one of my sisters in the, who lives in America, she, she would not maybe be able to say any of that. And then in this way, like, okay, this is an indigenous person. And then, yeah, you talk about that stress or that like feeling like, um, like, oh, I don't know how to say that. Do I have to say that? Or do I want to incorporate that? But imagine too being like, my mother spoke that language. You know, like, I don't even know how to say that. This is where we're at. So it was a small step, you know, really small. Um, but it, it is all intended to keep going because yeah, um, imagine, imagine like some young shoegaze band, all Nehiawewin language, you know, fully. Every song. And then, too, it gets even further because it's not just Nehiawewin or or any one indigenous language. If we are talking about this in a really holistic way, then it's part of how people and families were connected. 
there's more people involved in this story whose languages have seemingly been entirely lost. We don't need to fit any molds anymore. You know, like this, this should be about like putting out new ideas. The only way for this music or any of these things to evolve is to actually incorporate sometimes old ideas, but, but in a new way. Also just ensuring that the, the microphone is open to all these voices to, to share. Because, you know, a lot of times it's been the European communities and, um, that have dominated the, a lot of areas of art and business and, uh, and music. It's not to say that that's how it's been. I, I think everyone's been creating, just the microphones haven't been pointed over there, you know. So it has been an invitation. And I think there have been small steps. Like, it, it's cool. Like, I never would have imagined like being younger that arts and crafts would have put out a band called Nehiwa. It's pretty sick. At the same time, it's also sick to imagine like, what's next? You know, like, what do these young guys do now? These young women, you know, young trans artists, or, you know, like what are these voices now coming that they get to be a little bit more liberated than the environments that you and I grew up in, you know? Um, thank you very much, Chris. Okay. Thank you, Lisa. That was so nice. Thank you, Chris. You can also go online to hear some Nehiwak. We've posted three videos to our website, including Paige, which Chris talks about in the interview. It features Marilyn Dumont, a local Métis poet, reading her poetry. Last week, we promised some music, so let's get to some. We asked Chris to share a song with us that highlighted the theme of story for him. He couldn't narrow it down to one, so here's two. Can I give you an old one and a new one? Yes. Okay. <laughs> the old one I was thinking was um, Fats Domino. And the song is, uh, I'm walking to New Orleans. But the thing about that, when I first heard that, I was like, who walks to New Orleans? That's got to be a massive walk. Look, I don't even know where you're starting, but I'm like, that seems like a massive walk. But then I was like, wait a minute. Indigenous people and melanated people. They're the ones who walked there, you know, like, whoa, like that's a deep story. And it was recorded in the forties. So all these people sing that, but then I was like, actually there were some people who sung that who had walked to New Orleans and most people who sung it didn't, they were just singing the song, singing the melody, you know? So I thought that was a cool, that's a story that's like, it's two meanings hitting you, but Sometimes if you didn't have that experience, the second meaning won't hit, you know? I didn't have the experience or anything, but I did think like, whoa, that's a gnarly thing to say. And, and then, okay, secondly was, um, oh, and, and I picked two male artists, so I, I didn't mean to do that. But um, again, just, just from some of, the, some of the sounds that really hit me uh, was Archie Roach uh, and his song, They Took the Children Away. It is that experience of residential school in a song and uh it's written from from the perspective from uh australia so and and an indigenous perspective from there and really when i first heard that song i we were on a, a stage at winnipeg folk fest and we, we were sharing the stage and i didn't know archie roach um i did know that they were kind of a big deal because it seemed as though and and anyway this this person it was in a wheelchair too and went out on this thing and played as this song started rolling in it's like it sounded like neil young and the composition was so incredible and the guitar playing and the voice i just started bawling i couldn't take my sunglasses off i was like oh shit <laughs> i'm like on a stage all these people are watching and here i am bawling because this guy is like killing me right now i said good one because i kind of felt like too that summed it up you know, like I was trying, that was also a, a component of this Nehiwak was that, okay, there's these residential schools experiences and history of colonialism. What is that? What does that even mean? How does it impact our life? You're like, here, these are our indigenous perspectives and sounds. What do they sound like? Well, <laughs> they're still going to sound like a kid who grew up listening to a lot of European music and European recording, because that is... That's where I come from, you know? And that too, like when Archie sang that, and it was like as good as, as Neil Young, but in a lot of ways better because the lyrics were just so deep. And then it was, okay, 
like this, this is it. This really sums it up. And, and Buffy's done that too. Many arts, but those two tracks I think are really nice. And well, anyway, this is, is probably an open-ended thing. And I'd love to share music with you all the time. And just, cause sometimes, you know, you got to throw a song in these education things. This time I'm walking to New Orleans I'm walking to New Orleans I'm gonna need to parachute When I get through walking these blues When I get back to New Orleans I've got my suitcase in my hand Before hitting play, we think it's important to share with you that this song is the story of the theft of Indigenous children and culture. While Archie Roach is singing as an Indigenous person from Australia, many listening know intimately the intergenerational impacts of stealing Indigenous children and culture here in Canada. Chris mentions in the interview that he cried when he first heard the song. This song may be hard to get through. Story's right, the story's true. I would not tell lies to you that the promises they did not keep, and how they fenced us in like sheep. They said to us, Come take our hand and set us up on mission and day. Told us to read, to write and pray. Then they took the children away, took the children away, the children away. Snatched from their mother's breast, said this is for the best, took us away. said you've got to understand we're gonna give to them what you can't give teach them how to really live teach them how to live they said humiliated them instead they taught them that and taught them this Taught them prejudice. You took the children away. The children away. Breaking our mother's hearts, tearing us all apart. Took them away. And one dark day on Fanningham, they came. 
dad saved up He stood his ground and he said You touch my kids Why you got to fight me Then they took us From a family He took us away They took us away Snatched from our mother's breast Said this is for the best Took us away music, but perhaps one of the most popular is through stringed instruments that can be taken, played, and shared anywhere, around the fire, to the tops of mountains, and onto stages. And of those, is there any more popular than the guitar? A maker of stringed instruments, including the guitar, is called a luthier, another new term for me, and we are about to meet a local luthier, Leila Sidi of Tuna Tone Guitars, who thinks about guitar making a little differently. She centers her practice around accessibility and possibility. Hi, my name is Layla, and I'm a guitar builder here in Edmonton, and I build under the name Tunatone Instruments. So, Layla, how did you, um, someone who's not a musician, find your way into guitar building? Yeah, I mean, it's kind of funny. I guess I, I've always been kind of handy, and I've always been really interested in how things work, but also in just working with my hands and learning. Like I'm really, I'm really curious about how things work all the time. So for 
quite a number of years, I volunteered at a local bicycle shop, the Edmonton Bicycle Commuters. It's called Bike Edmonton now, but I, I volunteered in their, um, in their bike shop for a long time, learning about the mechanics of bikes and learning how to use tools. And from there, I started to get interested more in kind of working with a different material. I didn't, I started to not really like working with metal as much because it didn't feel as organic in my hands. So I started to become a bit more uh, curious about wood. And it was in the bike shop that I started to work with wood and just kind of like sneak in after hours and uh, do projects that were like not bike related at all. Um, and a friend of mine from the bike shop learned about an auction that was happening just off the Yellowhead. And they were, it was an old wood shop and the person had moved out of that wood shop and he asked me if I wanted to go to the auction. So I did. And I didn't know anything about <laughs> like woodworking tools at all, but I did meet two guys. Uh, their names were Brad Gertz and Dion James. And I don't know how it really happened, but we introduced ourselves to each other and they said they were starting this collective shop. And so one day I was actually taking kind of like a, it's called Women Building Futures. It's just off like kind of by Grant McEwen downtown. And I was taking like a, I was taking a course through them. And as a requirement through the course, I had to do like a kind of placement with a professional and I had to find it myself. And so I decided to go to this collective shop that they had told me about at the auction and see if they would, somebody would mentor me for two weeks. So I did. And I went there and they, Brad Gertz, the furniture builder, um, decided to take me on for the two weeks. And that two weeks turned into four years of mentorship. So I kind of, I, started for the first four years uh, as a woodworker kind of learning about furniture but at one point Brad had to leave the shop and the other guy that I met at the auction was Dion and he builds guitars and um, I was dating a musician at the time and so I asked Dion when Brad left I wanted to stay in the shop and keep learning and so I asked Dion if he would help me uh, if he would help me keep learning and stay in the shop by starting to build a guitar for my partner. And he said, yes. So that's like, I spent a year building that one instrument and that was like my first instrument. And now I'm building my, about to start my, I don't know, 13th or something. Wow. And uh, what was it about guitar building that kept you like after building that first one, why'd you keep going? Honestly, Dion was really encouraging. He just sort of said, like, he just kind of said one day, yeah, do you like, do you like this? Like, do you like building guitar, like this guitar? And I said, yeah, I really like it. And I don't know, he just said, yeah, I think you're good at it. And I think you should keep going. And so I did. I love the scale of it. I love the mix of materials. I love the elements of design. Like there's lots and lots of things, but honestly, that one 30 second conversation was kind of like life changing for me. And I was like, okay, sure. Yeah. So we got a shop together and like, he's been my mentor since for four or five years now. So you make short scale electric guitars. What is it about these guitars in particular, their design, their manufacturing, their, uh, the people who play them? What is it about short scale guitars that is particularly inspiring to you? And first of all, what are they? Yeah, so uh, the scale length on a guitar is kind of defined by, well, a guitar in general is an instrument where strings vibrate between two points. And on a guitar, the 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 two the two points that strings vibrate between between are the nut and the bridge and a scale length is defined by the the distance between the nut and the bridge and so on a long scale guitar or a full scale guitar or a short scale guitar you can still play all the same notes but the longer the scale the deeper the the register of the the sound when i was building that first instrument 
with Dion, once Brad had left the shop, I was building a base and sort of the average scale length of a, of a full scale base is 34 inches. So 34 inches between the nut and the bridge. And that makes for a, a really long guitar. And, but the, the guitar that I was kind of, um, replicating was a short scale bass, which is only 30 inches between the net and the bridge. And what I discovered in kind of doing research about that guitar and trying to figure out why it was like, why, why it needed to be sort of rebuilt in a way, like why it was kind of imperfect. The one that I was copying or replicating just had all these issues associated with them. Like it was, it was a beautiful guitar, but also like a little bit of a funny guitar. And as I was doing research about why, what made it kind of unusual or imperfect, I realized that factories that build guitars en masse are basically building smaller scale guitars, which like I said, you can play the same notes on those guitars, but they're building these smaller scale guitars at kind of a lesser quality. And the value behind that decision is that professional musicians don't really play small scale instruments. Instead, children and women play small scale instruments. And then once they, you know, once they grow up or whatever, like once, you know, once a little boy playing an instrument becomes like a man, um, he'll play like a full scale instrument. So those instruments are the ones that they pour a lot of resources into in terms of design and parts and all that kind of stuff. So those instruments are professional quality, but the things about them are that they're really large. They tend to be really heavy. They're kind of designed and made for people with really big hands. And so what that leaves out is a whole bunch of professional musicians who aren't huge um, and a huge subset of the people that those instruments leave out are women and non-binary folks. And so the, so I build, I decided that that was kind of an interesting design challenge was to be able to make short scale instruments that, um, that were really high fidelity, that were really like professional quality. And so, um, in doing so, I've kind of centered and focused around people who in those, in the decisions that factories uh, made to leave out this demographic of professional musician, I'm sort of centering that, that demographic. And my guitars aren't comically small or anything like that. They're playable by people of all sizes, but I'm just really focusing on building guitars that are robust, but also lightweight and kind of playable with, by people with smaller hands. Why is it important to you to build guitars for folks who are typically excluded from these design decisions? And um, what, is, what does accessibility mean to you? Like why, what does it mean and why and how does it factor into the work that you do? I'll start with the definition, like the, my sort of working definition of accessibility. And I see accessibility as a design concept. So if we think about it, like everywhere we go and everything we interact with was designed by someone, um, the question of accessibility becomes who was that designer thinking of and who was that designer leaving out in the process of designing this place or this thing? And when everybody can interact with a place or thing with ease, it's considered accessible or universal. But when there are barriers to access, and one example might be when the bathroom is at the top of the stairs in a staircase, it makes it impossible for somebody to use it if they can't go up the stairs. And so that's considered inaccessible. So in terms of my own designs, I think it's important to think about kind of this physical accessibility of making an instrument that a musician can play for a long time and that can kind of access like all the notes they want to with the speed that they want to, with the comfort that they want to, um, because I'm making sort of like a slimmer, um, like a slimmer kind of instrument. The reason it's important to me is because then the design of the instrument is no longer a barrier to somebody playing it. And I think like the greatest compliment I've ever received about my guitars came from 
this person in Baltimore who played one of my guitars and specifically wanted to try one of my instruments because she's really small. She has chronic pain and she's never played a guitar that doesn't hurt her. And so she played my guitar for some time and the like, I mean, she wrote like a really beautiful sort of thing about it. But one thing that she talked about was that, um, was that she felt like when she played my guitar, she was a better player. And I think that that was like, like, that's the whole point is that that instrument wasn't standing in her way as a musician. And I think that's like a, the ultimate sort of compliment to me and what I'm up to. Amazing. Um, and so full disclosure, Layla's a friend and, um, I know you to really prioritize accessibility in the work you do both as a luthier and as an occupational therapist and, um, and also as an organizer who spends a lot of time thinking about, um, how to, to help contribute to the world we want to live in. So I'm wondering what it means to you to design for the world that we want to live in. I think for me, what it means to design for the world I want to live in, in this particular way is like, it's really like, it's interesting to be kind of immersed in a craft where I'm really focused on what I'm doing, but I can kind of think about every step as having some kind of impact on something larger. And so, for example, um, in the guitar world, there's like all kinds of people that'll talk about what would sound the best and why and what, you know, there's just a whole world around that. Um, and a lot of times they'll sort of uphold or uplift uh, the idea that tropical woods or like this idea of kind of quote unquote exotic woods are the best and sound the best. And I've really just thought about how, like what the impact is around buying wood from places that are far away where there's really maybe not very much transparency around deforestation or where that, like how that's happening, what that looks like, what the labor looks like. And for me, I think when we design for the world we want to live in, it's about asking all those questions and trying to figure out, um, just trying to figure out like the most honest way to go about like each task. And so for me, for example, what that looks like is I try as hard as possible to, um, to use materials like wooden materials, for example, that, uh, where that has like the highest degree of transparency possible so that I, so that like, I'd really love just to know that the wood that I'm, that I'm using is not, you know, coming from a forest that was, uh, that was like cut down in order for oil extraction to happen underneath it. And, um, and so I've like, I've developed a relationship, for example, with uh, a local arborist, his name is Kenny and I'm going to see him tomorrow evening. And he will cut down trees that are sort of coming down within the city. Um, and he has a mill and him and his brother kind of, uh, kind of cut these, like cut these trees into slabs and dry them in his garage. It's, it's heated by a wood, wood stove. And, um, and so I've really like started to focus on getting wood from Kenny just because I know where these trees have come from. He has such an intense knowledge of trees and so much wisdom around them and I get to learn about them. And then, uh, and then also like, there's just, I have like a relationship with, um, I have a relationship with the place and also like the people that these materials are coming from. Cause I mean, wood is a sacred material and I want to, I want to just know as much about it and have like a close as, as close a relationship to it as I can, as I build with it. I'm wondering as this is like a class where we're talking about storytelling, um, I know that you spend a lot of time on each guitar and you spend a lot of time communicating with the folks who are going to be purchasing the guitar and who are going to be playing the guitar. And I'm wondering what having that relationship with the guitar player, having them involved in the process does to enable you to create a guitar specifically for them, to create a guitar with 
them in mind, a guitar that tells their story? Yeah, I think, I mean, getting, I'm really into relationships and getting to know people that are going to play an instrument that I'm definitely going to bleed over and cry over and like sort of break my brain over for a number of months just feels really important to me. Like it's just, it's hard work and I love just knowing who's going to get it. Um, and there's so much time spent, like so much time spent building that, um, yeah, it's a really nice thing to be able to think about the person. So it's, it's like a privilege to be able to get to know them. Um, but yeah, I think, uh, I think getting to know the person really does kind of guide me in just being able to build the guitar that I think is right for them, or I hope deeply is the right guitar for them. And one, a build that I'm just doing right now and like a week away from finishing, um, is for somebody who I've kind of met like in Edmonton and through community, but it was, um, we got to like when I, when, because he lives in Edmonton, I kind of invited him to my shop to try to choose wood because I have a bunch there. And we ended up talking about lots of things about just things that were happening in the world about lots of like sort of things around like um, indigenous land defense. And this was at the time that the RCMP were raiding uh, Wet'suwet'en territories for the second year in a row and in like earlier in the year. And, um, and so we spent most of our visit just like talking about that sort of thing. And then, as it came to sort of choosing wood, like I really anticipated he'd just look through what I have and be like, I like this and this, you know, <laughs> but, um, what we ended up kind of coming to was that actually, um, place is something that's so important to him. And he has lots of like, so much like family connection to this place in particular. And he said, you know, over like over species and what it looks like and what it, you know, anything like that. He, what he really valued was this idea of, uh, this idea of using wood locally. And that was actually the build that kind of prompted me to seek out Kenny, the arborist that I mentioned and buy wood, um, specific to, uh, like specific to here. And, we sort of talked about species. I learned about species. We're using two species that are indigenous to here, um, Manitoba maple and American elm. And we really like, like, we really ended up talking so much about kind of like the feelings and the stories and the politics around these particular trees. And eventually the person I'm building this guitar for, like, yeah, just felt really good about these choices. And I remember we were sort of texting about it at one point and then, um, and we just like settled on this, on these two types of wood and he felt really, really good about it. And then he just wrote to me, let's make a guitar out of this place. Last question. Included in our course kits was an article um, about tuna tone in She Shreds, which is, quote, a magazine dedicated to women guitarists and bassists, end quote. And uh, I'm just wondering, what's important to you about sharing your work and story with communities like She Shreds? Oh, it feels so important to me. Um, I... It feels really important to me because She Shreds is a really robust community of mostly, mostly queer, uh, like women and trans and non-binary people and like lots of black and indigenous and people of color. And as somebody who's queer and a person of color, it's just like, it's been so important to be able to kind of connect with, uh, this really specific kind of, uh, I guess this really specific sort of group of, of musicians who kind of I share identity with. And it's been cool because like after that article, I've been able to make friends like all over North America based on uh, like just shared interest and identity. And I've like my graphic designer right now uh, is somebody who just like contacted me because she read that article and kind of identified with it, which is so lovely. Um, and it was also important to me because I've spent lots and lots of my life as a queer person of color, just kind of hiding in terms of an identity way. And 
that article was um was it like really felt like a big decision to stop hiding to like really be able to kind of talk about myself in a on a kind of larger platform and i'm really glad i did because i've i've received messages from people who have kind of talked about like how important it was for them to be able to um i don't know see like just just feel sort of represented um, in terms of identity and what I was talking about. And I've even received feedback from parents who, <laughs> who said it was like, it was really kind of nice to read my article just because they have queer children and they're able to, I don't know, just that sort of level of representation feels important. Um, so if somebody wanted to hear a tuna tone guitar, are there any artists locally or otherwise who are, who play? A tuna tone guitar and is there any way that we can hear one of their tracks yeah so there's uh there's two local musicians who have tuna tone guitars um jessica jalbert of faith healer has one of my guitars and um and also uh wears um just released a really amazing album called survival and the title track is uh cast plays um cast plays a tuna tone on that track can't wait to listen to it. Well, thank you, Layla, so much um, for sharing all of that with us. Such a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you, Layla. Not only for the guitars you make, but for the stories you make possible by creating guitars for people often excluded in mainstream guitar making decisions. Just a reminder that you are listening to Hum 101, and we are Kendra Cowley and Lisa Prince. And you can tune into the show every Friday from 6 to 7 p.m. here on CJSR 88.5 FM. If you have any questions or have a story you would like to share with us, you can reach us at 587-709-5472 or hum101 at ualberta.ca. And you can check out our website at hum101onair.ca. Now for Layla's song pick. From the homegrown group Wears, the next song is... The the title track from their latest release called Survival, a, quote, record dedicated to decolonial activists, anti-fascist agitators, prairie queers fighting for community and a better life, end quote.
Thank you for sharing that, Leila. We've posted some links to hear that song and more from Wares on our website. Which makes us a good time to remind you that you have been listening to another HUM 101 class here on CJSR. We are here each week on Fridays from 6 to 7 p.m. As we have mentioned, we have many other things at our website, so head over there and check it out, hum101onair.ca. We appreciate all the activities that have been shared with us thus far. We also want to thank everyone who's been letting us know they've been listening. There are end-of-term certificates that we are excited to hand out to those who participated in the course this term. You can participate by completing some activities or all of the activities. If you would like to participate and have any questions or if you need any supplies, let us know at 587-709-5472 or hum101 at ualberta.ca. This week, we're introducing another activity, Soundtrack of My Life. Soundtracks are made to help narrate a visual story, to provide depth of meaning, as well as heighten the emotions of the viewer and listener. If you think through your life as a movie playing, what songs would you include to help tell your story? What moments would you choose to heighten? Perhaps you would like other parts to disappear, so you choose to keep those moments silent. For this activity, we hope that you will look back, maybe to five minutes ago, maybe to when you were a wee babe, upon a few highlights of your life and put music to them. What songs would you choose and why? One listener, Jenny, has already shared this activity. Instead of writing, she made a digital story to the music. You can watch it on our website under the listener story tab. Now let's hear Jenny's song.
That was Jewel featuring Dolly Parton singing Father's Daughter. Thank you to everyone who made this week's class happen. Thank you always to AG47 for the theme music and Jason Boris for the sound engineering. And thank you for tuning in. Next week, we continue with music and have some incredible folks sharing their music, stories, and knowledge with us. So keep the volume turned up for another week. Take care and have a great night. <laughs>